that's when you would say fine or not fine or whatever. Hey, I was, uh, I'm excited this morning to be with you. I was perusing YouTube, trying to figure out a creative way to start today, and um, I, I found this video, and I just couldn't get past it, um, and so I wanted to show it to us, but it may or may not have anything to do with this morning. It was really funny, so we should watch it together. You cool with that? All right, let's do it. Close your eyes and just fall down, okay? Don't worry. Okay, then Lauren's going to catch eyes, you. Close your eyes, okay. Okay, it's called Ready? a trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. <laughs> just really seems like something I would do. Uh, I'm watching, I was like, that's, that's me. Like, I would totally do that. Trust, trust is so hard. It is so stinking hard. Um, so if you don't know what we're talking about today, clue in. Uh, if you have your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 14. Uh, I, I want us to look at a passage uh, that at the, the core and the fundamental of what it is, is about uh, trust. And in order for us to really get everything we can out of this passage of scripture this morning, Exodus chapter 14, um, I want to give us a... Um, a snapshot of what's been happening in the life of the Israelites up until this point. And so you're going to go, we're going to go to a history class right now, so you may want to take some notes. Um, but in this story, the, the nation of Israel has been in Egyptian captivity for a few hundred years now. And we come to this point in time where God's just, he's done with it. And so in, in Exodus chapter 3, uh, he approaches a man named Moses. You probably know this story. And he commissions him, and he wants to use Moses to deliver um, the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. Um, and, and what happens is Moses tells God every reason why he's incapable of doing this. And God continues to assure him that um, if he would just say yes to God, you can be sure that it is going to be the power of God that goes with you that is going to compel uh, Pharaoh and his army uh, to release the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. All Moses has to do is be faithful to what God's asked him to do. And so chapter 3, 4, and 5 is, is really about Moses getting geared up to do that. And then in chapter 6 and 7 of Exodus, um, God promises that he's going to deliver on everything that he said he was going to do uh, through Moses. Uh, the Israelites were becoming uh, very accustomed to slavery. They had just kind of settled into this was the way of life uh, it was going to be. And God reassured Moses over and over again that he had been given power and he had been given authority from God to approach um, up until this point in Scripture the most powerful man in the Bible, um, in, in the world really. This man had built a, a, a government and an army that thrived on fear. And he was the biggest, baddest mamma jamma on the earth compared to God Almighty. Um, God had uh, so much power in this situation because he is God. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh. And to show that he means business, um, there's this really cool uh, situation where supernaturally, uh, through the power of God, Moses turns this rod that he's carrying into a snake. Uh, but scripture says that God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And that he is not going to budge, even in the midst of seeing something so supernatural as that. And what's going to happen is it's going to start the ten greatest displays. Ten greatest displays of God's power over creation so as to prove that he means business. And so God sends these things called plagues. Now, you may have read about this or you may have heard about it, um, but a plague is just a fancy way to, to describe this continual distress that human beings have no power over whatsoever. 
Okay, God sends 10 plagues, and y'all, he sends some nasty, nasty stuff. Like if we were to walk out and some of these things were present, hide your kids, hide your wife, it would be nasty, okay? So um, he, he turned uh, the Nile River, he turned it into blood completely. Uh, he, he sent frogs everywhere, gnats everywhere. One day, y'all, the livestock just completely died. Like picture just dead animals everywhere, right? Um, Locusts, uh, he sent hail, and I'm not talking about Mark, Sarah, Matt, or Sheila, right? Like, he, <laughs> I thought I would follow up on his joke. Didn't work. Um, and then he sent uh, three days of pitch black darkness. There was no light whatsoever in the world. And then finally, it comes to this point where God has to really show that he means business because Pharaoh's not budging. And so what God does is he allows the firstborn of every child that is in under the rule of Pharaoh to be killed. But he gives them a way out. See, God being rich in mercy says that if you'll just do what I ask, this is where we get the idea of the Passover, okay? That if people would just put the blood of a lamb, you, should, you really should go to the scriptures and read this story because it's an incredible, incredible story of how God, even in the midst of him trying to prove that he is a powerful God, gives his people a way out if they would just be obedient. But Pharaoh is not budging. And finally, we come to this point where Pharaoh, because of his stubbornness, loses his firstborn child and understands, okay, they got to go. The people are getting tired of it. Pharaoh's getting tired of it. Pharaoh's men are getting tired of it. And in chapter, um, in chapter 12, uh, verse 50, we see that the Israelites are officially um, liberated from the nation of Egypt. And the cool thing about this liberation is that God doesn't just say, okay, I let you free, now just go live your life. Like this is, this is the beginning of the story for the Israelites. They had had a long history of being slaves under a slave master where they had no control and finally God gives them freedom and he says, okay, I'm gonna send you back and I want you to go exactly the way I tell you to go. He gives them everything they need. Much like when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, God says, this is the beginning of the story, and I want to use you, and I'll work through you, and I'm going to guide you, and I'm going to give you every single thing you need. The entire Bible, the entire story of the Bible is how God has come to seek and save that which was lost. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God has been in hot pursuit to find that which is lost. And the story of God providing a way out for Egypt is really foreshadowing the fact that we as human beings have been provided a way out of slavery, the slavery of sin and death, by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross that we celebrate every Easter. Here's what I want you to understand this morning before we jump into the scripture is that God is a promise keeper. Now, why do I say that? If you and I were to have a conversation one day, let's say we went to have some coffee, and then I was like, you know, I got a really good idea. Um, I want to take you to New York City. And I, I say, you know, Hobby Airport is right there. I don't have money to buy a ticket, but I'm pretty sure that if we can just get past the fence that we can get a plane, okay? And then once we get in the plane, I haven't flown, but I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express. And so um, we can, I'll sit in the cockpit, and you sit as a co-pilot, and I'm pretty sure we can get this thing in the air. And then hopefully by the halfway, by the time we get there, like, they'll realize this guy needs to land, and we'll just pick LaGuardia or JFK. I promise you that I could get you to New York today. 
if I could convince you to even get past the fence, as soon as we sat down in the cockpit chair, you would realize that I was a moron, that I did not know what I was doing. But I have a friend named Brett. Brett's a pilot for Southwest Airlines. If you and Brett were sitting down and having coffee, and he said, you know what? I want to take you to New York City today. See, one thing about Brett is that he, he trained fighter pilots when he was in um, the Air Force. And he's been flying for Southwest for some time now. And so that means that he has access and um, he can get past the fences and he can sit in the cockpit chair. And he has lots and lots of flight time that if he were to tell you, I promise I'm going to take you to New York City, you would look at him with a lot more trust and go, okay, let, let's go. Because here's the reality about being a promise keeper. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. A promise is only as good as the, purpose, the, the person who makes it. And so the statement that God is a promise keeper can be taken to the bank because his character, because he has always come through on everything that he said he was going to do. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that all of God's promises find their yes in him. So we get to chapter 14, and now we're going to see that even with all the evidence around them, are the Israelites really going to trust God? And here's what I want us to do while we're reading. Would you help me, and as we read, would you read it through the lens of your life? Would you read it through the lens of trusting Jesus? Because I really believe that God's going to have something incredible to show us about what it is to trust him fully today. And so if you have a Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. There's going to be some big words that I'm going to pronounce, and you can make fun of me later. All right. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Phihaharath between Migdol and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. Once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Verse 5, when the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. So this is referring to the fact that they had decided to let them go. They began to change their mind. What have we done? Letting all the Israelite slaves get away. They asked. So Pharaoh harnessed the chariots and called in his troops. He took with him 600 of the best Egyptian chariots, along with the rest of the chariots in Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with their fist raised in defiance. Now, I don't know about you, but if I leave the most powerful dude in the world with my fist going, yeah, I told you so, I feel pretty good about myself right now. It dawned on Pharaoh that his officers had, um, he and his officers had allowed the Jewish slaves to escape. And it had threatened every single bit of their commerce, their well-being, and may have just destroyed the Egyptian way of life. And so the logical thing for Pharaoh and his men to do was to go and chase them down. I mean, after all, they had gotten them into captivity in the first place. They were very powerful enough to do so. And here, we're given another reason as to why the Lord selected the route that the Israelites went on. You see, as the crow flies, it would have been a lot easier for them to go a different way. But God selected this specific route that he wanted them to go. 
And they said yes up until this point. The reports would have convinced Pharaoh in that the Jews were wandering in the desert, a little foreshadowing, by the way, were wandering in the desert like lost sheep and therefore were fair game to any army that would pursue them. But God was at work and he had a purpose. God's heart is, was to see his people freed from slavery. His heart all along was that. There was, there was no doubt around that fact. But I also want us to see the bigger picture of what's going on. The bigger picture was that his desire for his people is that they would be fully dependent on him and him alone. That they would lean not on their own understanding, but that they would fully trust God. You see how this could be speaking to us this morning. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we join into this grander story of God's purpose and God's plan. And for us, being on this side of the cross of Jesus, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of him paying a penalty that we could not pay, for us, um, God wants to use us in his glorious story to bring a glimpse of heaven to, er to earth no matter what our circumstances would dictate. In fact, Scripture would say that we're saved by grace through faith in the promise and the hope of Jesus. But his desire is not just that we would experience salvation, but that we would experience a full life. Now, notice I didn't say a life full of stuff, but a life that is fully dependent on him. He is worth trusting, even when it gets hard. And we're about to see the Israelites experience this. And again, would we read this through our heart? Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked. They saw the Egyptians coming to overtake them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? They're getting a little snarky with him. What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you that this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better for us to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Uh, a few years back, I got the opportunity to go skiing uh, in Colorado, and it was, it was really beautiful. But one of the things you have to know about me is that um, I don't have a lot of experience skiing, okay? Um, when I see children that are six and seven whizzing by me without poles, I'm like, that's dangerous. Why? Why would you do that to your child? One of the things that my friend promised me um, was that he wouldn't put me in any dangerous situations uh, to where I wouldn't be in control. Um, that wouldn't be outside of my experience of knowing how to ski. And um, so I did some training on the Bunny Hills. I, I became the leader of like this great seven-year-old group. Uh, they really trusted me. Um, and I decided that was a little weird, so it was time to go to the greens. Um, and my friend, he told me, hey, I, I've been, you're good, man. Like, greens are really, I mean, some of you guys know this. Like, greens are really awesome. And what I found out was, after I got off the, the thing that takes you up, I don't know what it's called, uh, lift. There we go, lift. Um, after I got off the lift and, you know, my skis flung up because you didn't lean forward. Um, yeah, laugh it up, chuckles. Um, <laughs> 
I got my skis back on. And what I realized is that I, I could handle a green, y'all. And it was so beautiful. The mountain was, I mean, we were up higher and the mountain was beautiful and the, the snow caps. And I was like sipping a mocha frap while petting a bunny. It was a beautiful moment. And I was following my friend and everything was great. But you, you see where this was going, right? Then came the turn that will forever scar me for life. See, there was a fork ahead in the road, and, and one way was going to go the path that we were kind of going. The other way was a little more green, and my friend decided he's ready for this. Either that or he could take me to the mountains to kill me. I didn't know which one was true, but I just know I didn't want to be lost in the middle of the mountains. And so um, I, I begin to go down this hill, and there's, there's this little buddy, right? He's, he's probably 9 or 10. He has no skis, and he just thinks it's fun, right? So he's whizzing around me and, like, you know, patting me on the back and then running away and stuff like that. And I'm like, bro, you better watch it. Like, you are in trouble. And it's not because of me. It's because mass plus falling on a mountain is not good for you. And... I'm, I'm literally going down this mountain, and he does one of these things where he flips to the side, and he sprays snow all over me, and I kind of go blind. But what I realize is there's an, an 8 to 10-year-old child that has stopped in front of me, and I don't know how to stop. And, and so I, I literally, with all of my might, jump as high as I can, probably not that high. And I feel the ski hit him on the top of the head, and I'm thinking, I've just committed homicide. Like, this kid is not going to make it. And I turn around, and we kind of do that thing where we check ourselves, and we're like, okay, everything's intact. Stuff may be broken, but we'll figure it out later. And I look up, and he's on all fours. He's got snow on his face, and he kind of wipes it away from his goggles, and he goes, that was awesome. And I'm like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? I, I literally, I sat down on my, my, my fanny. I threw the skis down, and I looked back at my friend, and I was like, you had a telemedic to come get me because I ain't moving. Then I realized it was really cold. I probably should get moving. So I did one of these moments all the way, all the way back down the mountain. Here's my point. Um, all is well when all is well, right? When things are going great, it can be the most beautiful situation in the world. It's easy to follow Jesus when all is well, right? But you, get, you let the situation change. You let things get a little dicey. You let us get pressed. And in our humanity, we are prone to do exactly what the Israelites did. We're prone to look at God and throw our hands up and go, you've got to be kidding me. I followed you for this. As long as everything's going well, the Israelites usually obeyed the Lord and Moses made progress but if there was any trial or any discomfort, if you were to continue to read the story, you would know that their circumstances changed their heart. They immediately began to complain to Moses and the Lord. And they even started to buy into the lie that maybe slavery was better than this. How much disappointment? How much of a change in plans? How much does it take discomfort for us to be unhappy with the will of the Lord and to stop trusting and start complaining. What does it take for us before we look at the sin that we know enslaved us and think maybe that life was better and we try to take control? But what if, what if God is wanting to press us a little bit so that we can learn how to how to depend on him more? What if he allows us 
to go through circumstances that get a little dicey and we don't see the end result so that he can prove over and over again that he is a God that can be trusted. Uh, our, our student ministry staff, along with some of our leaders, uh, over the last three years have gone to this conference called Church Leaders Conference. It's in Dallas. We go in the spring, and it's, it's a great time for us to, um, to get together as a team and to pray and to have fun and to learn from leaders. Um, and the pastor of the church that we go to, his name is Todd Wagner, and there is this quote that he has used the last two years that has just rocked my world over and over again. And the quote is this, and I want you to write it down if you can, or take a picture of it. It says this, if dependence is the goal, weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the goal, weakness is an advantage. Now look at me. Some of us are, are killing ourselves trying to be the Lord of our life. How much longer could we keep that up? And, and, and we're tired. And, and I'm not just talking to those of us in here who, who may not have a relationship with Jesus yet. I'm talking to all of us, those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, who have tasted the goodness of God, who have seen how he can free us from the bonds of slavery, of sin and death. Some of us, God has delivered us out of the slavery. We have tasted freedom. And things got a little dicey. And instead of trusting that God was at work for our good, we are trusting in our former slave master to give us something that we know it won't give us. If God was good enough to save us, surely he's good in these moments too. What we need to see is that when it comes to really depending on God, we have to quit being such control freaks. And we have to allow him to work because if dependence is the goal, then weakness is to our advantage. How do we do this? Moses is going to lead the people in what it looks like to live a weak life and trust in God, even when the odds are against them. And so we're going to pick up in Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. God's reminding Moses, like, I've already told you I'm going to be with you. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so that Israel can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Maybe underline the word dry and, and then meditate on that. Like the, the ground wasn't even muddy and it had been saturated for thousands of years dry ground and I will harden the heart of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites and my great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops his chariots and their charioteers and when my glory is displayed through them all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am Lord so Moses gives three commands that I want us to see this morning before we're done the first one is this he says fear not how many of y'all have ever heard of uh, the fight or flight instinct? Fight or flight, anybody heard it? All right. How many of you are fighters? All right, good. Good to know. I will join you if anything happens. How many of you are flighters? After I punch, I will probably join you because I am scared. Okay? I have a little bit of both in me. I'm that dude that goes up and punches and then runs away. Okay? I get scared, y'all. 
There's no such thing as a fair fight, by the way. Grab a trash can or something. It's okay. No, I'm kidding. We don't fight. Sometimes fear energizes us, and we are quickly able to avoid danger. We react. But sometimes fear paralyzes us. We don't know what to do. Moses wanted his people to know that there was zero reason for them to fear. And I understand that this is a hard one. So hear my heart today. Do not think that I don't empathize with our situations. I understand that there there are some of us in here that the gravity of what we are having to go through due to the fallen world that we live in is honestly things that I can't comprehend. But what I do know is that we serve a good God that wants us to fear not. And the reason he wants us to fear not is because where there is more trust in him, there is less fear of everything else. Do you hear that? I, I know it's hard. But when we, when we trust him, like truly trust him. And guys, this is something that God has been raking me over the coals on. But when we truly trust him, fear begins to flee. Fear is an attempt to take back over the reins, to take back over control. But if dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage, right? So I want to give give us some practical steps because I believe that fear flees when we know the heart of God. When we truly know his purpose and his plan is good, no matter what our circumstances. And there's two ways that I believe very simply that we get to know the heart of God. And I want to challenge you to do these for the next seven days And see how your community with the Lord grows. The first is this, daily time in prayer. That you would set aside in your calendar. Like we set aside the things that are important to us. That we would set aside in our calendar time where it's just me and him. And it's not just me talking, but it's also me listening. Turning the phone off. Getting a space where there's nothing to distract us. And guys, listen, I know it is hard to do that in the world that we live in. Daily prayer. And we will begin to know the heart of God. The second thing goes hand in hand with that, simply reading the word of God. So many times we look and desire answers. We look for, we wonder, what is God saying? And I think if God was here with us, he would say, I've written the answer already. Would you get to know my word? Psalm 119.11 is one of my favorite verses. It says, when I hide his word in my heart, I will not sin against him. That means when I know the word of God in my heart and I know what he says about me and what he thinks of me and the life that he has for all who would believe in him, fear and sin begin to flee. These two go hand in hand in knowing the heart of God. And if we want to be fully dependent on him, we have to invest in these two things. Invest, key word. So what's happening in the story is Israel's being um, tempted to flee the freedom that God is trying to offer them when the situation gets dicey. And the second thing that Moses reminds them of that God has said is to stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord. There's so many times in scripture that God tells his people to stand still, to be still. If you were a part of women's Bible study last year, you guys spent an entire year over two words, be still. And what does that look like? When I was in high school, I was a lifeguard at a pool in our town, and I had to go through training for this. Um, Many of you guys have been lifeguards or are lifeguards. Um, 
but one of our training tasks was that we had to observe a training in um, live action. Basically, we had to ask a lifeguard if we could observe them for so many hours. And uh, the, the guy that I had asked, it was at a, a municipal pool, it was a bigger pool. Um, and he, he notices that there is a man that is beginning to struggle. He got in the water. Uh, he's beginning to struggle. And so this lifeguard goes into action. He, allow, he, he, he you know, blows his whistle, lets everybody else know what's going on. Um, and all of them kind of just go into action. He dives in the water. Um, and as he gets closer, he notices that this is no small man, that this is a large man. And this man is uh, flopping and flailing and, and beating against the water and fighting and fighting. And, and so what the lifeguard does is, is he just he gets as close as he can, but not too close. He stays near. And I'm, I'm literally on the side of the pool wanting to scream, like, save the dude. Like, what are you doing? But the lifeguard continued to tread water at a short distance, not because he didn't care and not because he didn't want to rescue, but because he was waiting for the man to stop trying to save himself. He knew that he would be unable to save the drowning man as long as he was using his own methods. And it would have probably put him in danger as well. As long as he was insisting on his own strength, relying on his own ability, he could do nothing. In fact, his cries for help, I remember, contradicted the goal that he really wanted. Finally, the man's energy had left him, and there was no more fight, and he stopped beating against the water, and he stopped leaning on his own understanding. He stopped using his own methods, and the lifeguard was able to take over. The lifeguard worked his way around the man and propped him up and took him to the side of the pool. And I remember um, after the situation was over and the guy had kind of calmed down, he, he looks at the lifeguard and says, I'm, I'm so sorry. I understand what was happening now. Um, by faith... The Jews had been marched out of Egypt. And now by faith, they would be commissioned to stand still and watch God destroy the Egyptians. How easy would it have been, how easy was it for them to weep, complain, criticize? But Moses reminds them of what God says. In fact, it's in the book of Psalm, chapter 46, verse 10. You be still and you know Who's in control? You be still and know that I'm God. So what's our application here? Let this sink into your soul because it will save you a lot of time. There is nothing you can do to earn the salvation of Jesus. You hear that? There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. Your devotion is not good enough to save you. And God is screaming to the Israelite people, just be still. I have promised you, just be still. You can't save yourself. Maybe some of us need to hear the voice of Jesus say, just be still this morning. This is what the Bible says of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, for we have been saved by grace through faith. And it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if we can't do anything to earn the love and salvation of God, and he is the one who gives us everything we need for life and for godliness, then in the midst of the gravity of life, what choice would we have than to listen to the commandment that Moses gave the people of Israel that day? You be still and you reflect on the salvation that has been given to you. And for us, 
that is in Christ Jesus when we surrender our life to him. You see the gospel spelled out for the Israelites? This is the same story that you and I get to partake in. And so um, how can we do this practically? Something that a friend um, challenged me on uh, the last probably eight months of my life is, is there a time in your day where you stop everything and just reflect on the fact that you've been saved? Is there a time in your day over and over again, repetitively, like 30 seconds, where you just stop and you realize that you were lost, but now you're found, that you were spiritually dead, but now you are alive in Christ? Find some time to be still and to reflect on the salvation that you have been given in Christ Jesus. Because I can promise you this. There have been moments in my life where my heart has not been right. There have been moments where I have been frustrated with people. And all of a sudden, this alarm goes off on my phone. And it says it's time to be still. And I reflect on the fact that, you know what? I've been saved by a grace that I do not deserve. That I cannot earn. And all of a sudden, my heart begins to line up with God again. Be still. Last thing Moses tells them is this. He says, go forward. This one's hard. This requires much of us. When Moses lifted up his rod, the waters would part, and the Israelites would be able to walk across on dry land and escape the Egyptian army. And at Moses' signal, the, the water would then flow back down and immerse the Egyptian soldiers and completely annihilate them, just like the Lord said. And I want you to notice something. In this situation, uh, after God had told them this, uh, Moses didn't go back over to the Israelite people and was like, okay, if we just give this some time, we can figure something out. Like we can tie some loot together and make a barge, and we can get across this water before these crazies come and get us. No. He reminds them. He reminds them that God and God alone is their Savior, that they can do nothing to save themselves, that God is the one who liberated them from the whips of Pharaoh, from slavery. Will he not save them now? Will he not come through on his promise? Remember what we said earlier. The thing about a promise that makes a promise good, it's only as good as the person who makes it. God is faithful, and he is good, and all of his promises play out. This is what Moses is trying, is trying to remind the people of God, and this is what we are trying to be reminded of today. Red Sea moments are moments that he uses to remind us. When we come to the end of our resources, to our understanding, to our wisdom, we're able to hear the voice of God say, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. I am a God who can be trusted we need this reminder, guys. God is the one, not us. The promise for the Israelites was that God was going to deliver them from the bondage of slavery and return them to their nation. That was the promise that God made them. The Israelites, it didn't go how they pictured it. But they needed the Red Sea moment. They needed this moment. They needed their backs against the wall. They needed to see that it was not them who saved them in the first place, but it was God. They needed a reminder that he was the one that was going to be faithful to them, not the other way around. They needed to remember who they were and who he was. So how does this translate to us? James chapter 1. 
James chapter 1 says, dear brothers and sisters, when you face troubles of any kind, consider it an opportunity for joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and completing, completed, needing nothing. And so here's my question for us as we begin to close today, okay? Um, I wonder if in moments where we're pressed, where things, where things get a little dicey, that it's not the wrath of God that we're so quick to run to, but it's the mercy. I wonder if God loves us so much that he would allow us to be pressed so that we would know that he desires for us to be fully dependent on him. Like, what a gift that is. What a gift it is to come to the end of our resources. What a gift it is that God would expose our sin and that we wouldn't know what to do with it other than to just trust that he's at work. What a gift that he chases after our heart, that his will for us is to seek and save that which was lost and to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. If we can't see the depth of our sin, we will never see how great our salvation is. If you read the rest of the story, God did exactly what he said um, he was going to do. And it happened exactly the way he said it was going to happen. And I, I want to encourage you, uh, sometime today, would you go back and would you read the rest of Exodus chapter 14? But I, I want to invite Matt and Sheila back up. And I want us to have a time of reflection um, and a time of worship. A time for us to respond to the word of God. Because this is how, this is how the chapter uh, 14 of Exodus finishes, Okay. They, they had just gotten through the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground. The, the Egyptians came in. They were taken over by the water. All of them were killed. The, the bodies began to wash up on the shore. And this is, this is what it says. It says, that is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hands of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power of the Lord, the power that he had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. The Israelites needed the Red Sea. They needed to be pressed because they needed to be fully dependent on him because they would not get anywhere without that. What is our promise that we have been promised? Our promise is not that we would not face trouble. Our promise is not that we, we wouldn't get the phone call that changes everything, right? And some of us know that way too much to be true. Our, our promise is that it is not that we would get the American dream. Like, you understand that, follower of Jesus? Like, that's not your hope. That's not your promise. Your promise is that when you fully surrender your life to Jesus, you get Jesus. Like, and his promises are he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. And when things get dicey, even though the wind and the waves would come and beat against the house, your house will stand. Because the promise of God is that he is at work in all that he does. For those of us who surrender our lives to Jesus, everything, everything could fail us, but we still get Jesus. That's our hope. 
And so as we, as we sing this and as we reflect on the word of God, may we be reminded, because all is well when all is well, but it's just as well if it's not when we have Jesus. Father, in this moment, would you minister to our heart? Would you help us to fully depend on you this morning? In Jesus' name.